A grace and peace to you all. It's Captain Roger from the Grass Valley Corps of the Salvation Army. It is, uh, as I record this, Christmas Eve. Grace and peace to each and every one of you. You ever wonder what the point of Christmas is? I mean, once the presents have been opened and lights have come down, trees packed away or put out for recycling, your family is left, leftovers have been eaten, we step on our scales with that sense of dread and regret, and we're left with kind of that feeling that something has been missed or left out. Almost like that that stuff, all that stuff around Christmas is just this web of symptoms, but there's still this gaping wound we haven't treated Maybe one we haven't even really noticed. It's like we've been using band-aids to cover scratches on our arms, but we're still suffering from a sucking chest wound that we don't know what to do about, or, or we haven't seen yet, or it's so bad our brains just haven't allowed us to comprehend it, or even understand that it's there. As we come to the end of the Christmas season, we all do so with this vague sense of unease, as if something is wrong or, or missing but we're not quite sure what. In the back of your head, because we're in a church setting here, you're probably thinking, oh, he's talking about Jesus somehow. And while I get why you might say that, no, that that's not it. Or at least that's not all of it. Now, understand what that means. We need to go all the way back to the beginning. My favorite book of the Bible, Genesis. You know, remember why that's my favorite? That's right, it's the easiest one to find. It's always at the beginning. Go to chapter 2, verse 7 of Genesis. I'm reading today from the uh, New Living Translation, so if you've got a different version, that's fine. Your words might be slightly different, but the meaning behind them should still be the same. Genesis 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Now, I gotta tell you, reading this in English, it's, it's kind of restrictive compared to reading it in the Hebrew that it was originally written in. Man, the word man, uh, English word that's translated as man, he breathed breath of life into the man's nostrils. Man doesn't mean like one guy. It, it, well, it, it does, and yet it, it doesn't. It, it's the, the Hebrew word, uh, or phrase, the Adam. And it's the way that humankind is referred to as God is creating humankind here. And notice that it says Lord, the Lord God. And Lord is in all caps uh, in almost every English translation. That's because it is not actually the word Lord. It is the proper name of God. And this is the first time the name of God is used in scripture. It's here in this passage. Not just any God who created humankind doesn't just say a God breathed uh, the breath of life or formed the man from the dust. It talks about Yahweh. It, it's the uh, four-letter tetragrammaton. It's a fancy uh, seminary word. It's the, the, the name of God, which is always expressed by those four letters, which we transliterate in English into Y-H-V-H, and we pronounce as Yahweh. Uh, and it says Yahweh didn't just create us, but he breathed life into us. And it's more than just breath. It's, it's spirit. It's animation. God made us. He breathed life into us. It, it's so, it's so personal. And we know from scripture and tradition that God would spend time with his creation, human beings. 
The, the way that we spend time with our family or our friends. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, the Lord made for them. He would come and walk with them every day until one afternoon. Verse 8, when the cool evening breezes were blowing. I mean, I moved to chapter 3, by the way. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. What what happened? Why are they hiding? Well, they're hiding because of sin. This is what happened right after they ate from that tree that God had warned them not to. And by sin, what I mean is they broke faith. They they were embarrassed because they had betrayed Yahweh, their creator. And the author is representing that as, as them realizing that they're naked. They've never felt exposed before God before, but now they're ashamed and they want to hide. Have you ever betrayed a friendship or, or had your friendship betrayed? It's like a knife in your chest. And it's always there, this thing between you, this emotion you don't know how to deal with, this shame you can't hide, but you don't want seen. In the case of the first couple, part of their consequence was that they they couldn't stay in the garden anymore. It had been their place with God, but now it wasn't a place either of them wanted to be. Their betrayal was too much. And the echoes of that betrayal in this place were too strong. They just, they couldn't be there. In future generations, we still hear about God's presence. But the relationship is different. It's changed somehow to something less than it could have been. The Lord walked with Cain. And he saw the young man's anger towards his brother, Abel. And he warned Cain, telling him he could deal with that anger in another way, that he didn't have to give in, that that righteousness was still within his reach. But Cain refused to hear. He spurned the advice of his creator and friend, and he plotted against his brother. And the next thing he knew, he was holding a rock, and his brother's blood was on his hands. And the Lord was standing beside him, saying, What did you do? And at that point, everything Cain had known, everything he had worked to achieve, all he had loved, it was lost. And so is his relationship with God. The relationship of Cain and God, already less than his parents had had, it was damaged further. And Cain was lost. God left the door open to reconciliation, but Cain chose to become a wanderer, unable to admit that the distance between them was his fault. And so it went. Each generation brought a little more sin and separation into the relationship, poisoning it with humanity's shame and betrayals, which led to this. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. It's Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. See, the Lord made us to be family. But we turned on him and on each other, and we decided that it was impossible. We just decided. But you know, there was still hope. Good verse 9. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, only uh, the only blameless person living on earth at the time, and he walked in close fellowship with God. 
And through Noah, God tried again. He extended his friendship, his righteousness. And after the flood, he tried to rebuild that relationship he had created humans to have with him. But Noah kept a distance between them. The potential for more was there, but it wasn't allowed to grow. Noah began to drink and to brood, and one of his sons shamed the family with bad behavior, and Noah compounded that by cursing that son and a whole line of his family, and humankind was back to what it had become, separated and lost. And from that point on, we only see glimpses of what could be. Abraham, he heard God's voice, he believed his words, and the two spent time together now and again, and Abraham was called a friend of God, even though he never seemed to allow himself to be more than a much-loved servant. Rather than walking together, God came to him at strategic points in Abraham's life, and even when God took Abe into his confidence and listened to his advice, Abe gave it like a servant might approach a king. There was respect, but not the personal intimacy which had existed in the garden. Abraham was too aware of his failings and those of humankind, and he was quick to assume that God's judgment would fall, quicker than he was to think of God as a friend, no matter how much the Lord showed him otherwise. And then Moses. Moses became the closest to God after Adam and Eve. God sought him out. He called him to come near using this bush burning in the desert. But it wasn't going to be like the relationship that God had had with Adam or even Abraham. In um, Exodus chapter 3 at verse 5, Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you're standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And when Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. It's hard to be friends with someone if you can't bring yourself to look at them. And when the Lord and Moses, when they led Israel out of captivity in Egypt, God traveled near them for a time. He took the form of a pillar of fire and smoke that led the people to Sinai. But when God spoke, they became afraid. And they asked Moses to talk to God for them, rather than allowing God to speak to them directly. Which Moses did, because he and God had become friends, even with the distance kept between them. And then while Moses and God were off hanging out for a couple of days, the people made a statue of a golden bull to worship instead of remaining faithful. We're told, then the Lord said, I've seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Now leave me alone so my fierce anger can blaze against them and I will destroy them. Then I will make you, Moses, into a great nation. And Moses was like, oh, whoa, 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 no, you don't. We both know that's not what you want to happen here. And God, he relented. He didn't destroy the people, but he did say, go up to this land that flows with milk and honey, but I'm not going to travel among you for you are a stubborn and rebellious people. And if I did, I would surely destroy you along the way. See, instead of walking with his people in intimacy, the Lord began to meet with Moses outside the main camp at a place they called the tent of meeting. And when Moses came out of these meetings, his face would be glowing as in just lit up, which freaked people out. So he had to put on a mask. But it got him thinking about it, and he realized that he really did want to see God, not just to be in God's presence or in God's vicinity, but to see him face to face. And Moses asked the Lord, show me your glorious presence. And the Lord replied, 
I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will call out my name Yahweh before you, for I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. But you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me and live. No one may see me and live? Well, well, why not? Wasn't that what Adam did? He and God, they hung out. Even Cain and Noah and Abraham and many of the others we read about, right? They hung out with God. Except it, it wasn't really what they did, was it? Each generation became a little more corrupt. Each era brought along one or two people who might dare to stand in God's presence, but no one who ever really opened themselves back up to the level of intimacy that had existed in the beginning. No one who didn't have some shame that they tried to hide, even Moses. You know how turning on a light just dispels darkness? What if the light of God dispels the darkness in us? But if we have this growing well of darkness inside of us, what happens when we expose it to the light and it disappears? No one may see me and live. See, I don't think that was a threat. I think it was a warning. I mean, if it was supposed to intimidate Moses, God would have just left it at that, right? Instead, he tries to give him the closest level of intimacy that they can have at this point. The Lord continued, Look, stand near me on this rock. As my glorious presence passes by, I will hide you in the crevice of the rock and will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and let you see me from behind, but my face will not be seen. It's kind of like he's saying, look, here, here, Moses, this is what you can handle. Let's do that. The Lord wanted to reclaim the intimacy that had been lost, but it couldn't be done all at once. It was going to take something special for him to be able to re-enter life with his people instead of just living life near his people. Something impossible. Well, nothing is impossible with God, so he devised a plan. A way that he could live with his creation again. A way that you and I could experience intimacy with God. And he announced this plan through various of his prophets and his people, including Isaiah. This is what Isaiah wrote. He said, All right then, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. We all get hung up on that virgin birth thing, but you know what? Quite frankly... The fact that God is with us is a much greater miracle than any sort of birth thing. Then Isaiah said, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. We wouldn't have necessarily known these two things went together. These two verses, two passages from Isaiah. Except Matthew In his uh, biography of Jesus in the New Testament, he wrote, All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And uh, John, in his gospel, he said, The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Which he said... 
because he knew when he was writing this, after all of these things had happened, he knew that Jesus had once proclaimed, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. All of which is to say, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Or to put it another way, God was willing to become human if that was what it took to begin rebuilding the relationship that we broke with our sin, our betrayal. And trying to explain this, the Apostle Paul said, Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. That's from Philippians chapter 2. Jesus Arriving among us as a baby all those years ago was an act of God making a way to be with his people again. Jesus grew in stature and wisdom until the time came for him to gather followers and teach them what it means to live in the light. How they could avoid lives cloaked in darkness. How they could learn to stand in the glory of God without fear. John records uh, an incident where Jesus shouted to the crowds, if you trust me, you are trusting not only me, but also God who sent me. For when you see me, you are seeing the one who sent me. I have come as a light to shine in this dark world, so that all who put their trust in me will no longer remain in the dark. I will not judge those who hear me, but don't obey me. For I have come to save the world and not to judge it. But all who reject me and my message will be judged on the day of judgment by the truth that I have spoken. Jesus came to show us how we could live in the light. How we could restore the relationship broken by the weight of our sin. And this is a restoration that God craves, but which we need to want as well. It's a restoration that faces a barrier that we can't overcome on our own. Restoration that can occur only once sin is lifted up from us. Which Jesus did. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Jesus personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds you are healed. Jesus took the penalty of sin and he brought it with him to the grave. Like a surgeon removing a tumor, he healed us from what would have killed us. His light dispels our darkness so that we can live in the light. And once Jesus was raised, resurrected, he appeared to his apostles and he gave them a gift of new life using a particular kind of symbolism so that they could understand. He stood there with him and he said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And then he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. What's he doing here? Well, Jesus is bringing his followers back to the beginning. God's breath, his spirit shared with his creation in this intimate way. <sighs> life being passed from the life giver to the lifeless so that they could live, so that we can live so that intimacy with God can be restored so we can walk with him again. God with 
us, Emmanuel. Something which we had allowed to be blocked by our sin, our shame, our hiding, and our darkness, it's restored to us. It's healed. The wound that we needed treated was an absence of God in our lives, but he is with us always. We were created to be together with his spirit animating us, giving us life, not to be set apart with him left at the distant fringe of our lives. When we interact with God, we treat him like he's a a band-aid that we just apply externally to heal minor cuts. What we miss is that lack of intimacy between us is like our lungs have been torn out. Jesus came to put our lungs back so that we can breathe again, so that we can be whole once more and restored with the ability to breathe God in and out and in and out and together. We can look forward to this day that we will walk with God the way we were created to. In the book of Revelation, we see this time talked about as one in which God will bring his holy city from heaven to earth and we will rejoice like a husband watching his perfect bride coming down the aisle to be joined together with him. That's when we'll hear a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Because that's what life with God is intended to be. Wholeness. Unbroken. Which becomes the choice Jesus told us we are making. Do we trust him and so live in the light or do we reject him and embrace the darkness? Do we give him access to replace our missing breath or do we try to live without it? I can tell you how that's going to turn out. I think you already know. Now, as this Advent season draws to a close, it is my prayer that this Christmas you accept the only gift that matters, the gift of God with us, intimately together, walking together, hanging out, breathing. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for caring about us and wanting to spend time with us, not just near us. Thank you for the example and the salvation provided by Jesus. Help us learn to breathe you into our lungs and our lives so that we will be animated by your presence, enjoying life together with you. Not separated from you, not just near you, but together. And we pray this as Jesus asked us to, in his name and with his authority. Amen. Amen. Hey, whoever you are, wherever you are, wherever you think you've got to in this world, remember, you have nothing to fear because God is with you. God is always with us. You, we cannot go anywhere God is not. Just go with God. Grace and peace to each and every one of you this Christmas and in the coming year. I will see you next time.